the past two weeks, I have been unplugged, disconnected, um, going days without checking my cell phone uh, because your girl needed a break, right? Like 2019 was an amazing year. Um, and I'm just really excited. You know, I came, I had to take some time off. Me and my fiance, we got our house like semi together. Um, we hosted his, my fiance's family's from Mississippi. They all came up north and we hosted his entire immediate family in the house. My grandmother and my cousin stayed here for six days. So we literally had 11 adults, three kids and a dog um, in the house for six days. And it was so much fun. It was like the black home alone. Um, and then I took a week off after that to just like recoup, rejuvenate and kind of get myself situated for the new year. So I'm just happy to be back um, and just want to check in with you guys and do a 2019 year in review. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about, again, 2019 in review, lessons learned, insights that I gained and really how I, which I'm like, I don't know why I'm like nervous to say this right now, but like the business made $334,349 last year without taking any one-on-one -on -one clients. And like, I don't know why that made me nervous saying that out loud. Like, it's just, I'm really, really excited about the business growth that we've been having. And I just wanted to, to share, I knew it would be insightful for you guys to get some lessons learned, where we made our most revenue, what our profit looked like, like just more about how the business model evolved to get to a point where, you know, we did over 300K in one year. So as we're going through this, you know, throw some hearts on the screen. I'm, I'm excited too. <laughs> um, I'm like still giddy about it. Like I keep looking at the numbers and recalculating everything from the year. Cause I'm just like, but did we really, like, did this really happen? And honestly, like, I, I so yeah, we're going to dive into the, the specifics and into the details because I, I don't want to go on any tangent. So first thing, I want to just go over the numbers. Like, I'm a really big, and this is something, too, that if you have not done this for yourself um, over the, you know, looking and reviewing the past year, like, re-watch this recording, like re-listen to this, and you need to be figuring out what these metrics are for your own business. Um, one thing that you know I'm a really, really big believer on is when you go from being an employee and fully stepping into a CEO and an ownership role, it is your responsibility to be how maintain a pulse on what's working, what's not working, and tracking your business growth and progression. Okay. So these are some numbers and metrics that I track, I measure um, that matter to me and that really resulted in um, the revenue increase that we experienced in 2019. So for the first thing is like revenue. We made $334,349 in 2019. Still saying that gets me like, I'm like super cheesy right now. Um, and one thing, that, uh, the next metric that I think is important is percentage of revenue growth from year over year. So we experienced a 44% revenue increase from 2018 to 2019. And I want to talk about revenue increase for a second here, because I think so often business owners who are, you know, getting to six figures or making multi six figures. Um, when, I know for me, my first year in business, I experienced exponential growth meaning I went from making $6,000 to making $150,000. That was exponential growth, if you look at that on a chart. And sometimes we can get into this mindset that every year needs to be exponential. Um, and one thing that I've had to learn and also like work through mentally and from like an emotional standpoint is that exponential growth year over year is not sustainable and it's not realistic. Um, and quite honestly, if you look at any other business model outside of the online space, it's um, it honestly can also be a red flag if you're having exponential growth year over year. So instead of focusing on exponential growth, I've been really focused on it. Are we having healthy increase year over year, not just from our revenue be having that as a healthy growth percentage increase, but also um, our profit. And really the big win, this is something that my fiance had to like, I was freaking out uh, like mid-November, beginning of G December, because I'm like, we're not growing. Like it wasn't exponential. And I was sharing my numbers with him. And he was like, how much has the business grown? Revenue rise from 18 to 19. And how much has your profit increased from 18 to 19? And we had a double increase. We had an increase in revenue percentage-wise and had an increase in profit. And he's like, that's a double increase. And that's really what you need to be looking for and paying attention to a year over year. So I just wanted to share that like insight. That's kind of a lesson learned for me last year is that, um, you know, sometimes we get so fixated on wanting to see exponential growth, like hundreds of percent increase year over year. 
Um, but really, it's just, are you having a healthy increase that's happening year over year from a revenue and from a profit perspective? And if you can see a revenue in both of those metrics, you're in a, re a really healthy place for your business to be in. So we experienced a 44% increase in revenue um, growth from 2018 to 2019, which is awesome. Um, and then one thing that I've also been tracking, again, I'm going to be super transparent with you guys, is how much money do you have in the bank after the year is over? And when's the last time you looked at that number? Most of us, you know, you look at that number and uh, the number is probably zero, <laughs> right? Because a lot of times when you're in business, what you bring in, you end up cashing right back out and you are back at ground zero. And one thing I'm really proud of is um, at the end of 2019, we had over $67,000 in the bank, um, which really sets us up to be in a really healthy position going into 2020 because this allows us to like be able to, one thing as you're growing your business and stepping into multi six figures is it, uh, you have to be more conscious and aware of cash flow. Meaning like how money is moving, when money is coming in, when money is going out. And a lot of the time when you're at a point, when you've crossed the six-figure mark and you're trying to get to multi-six figures, you need available capital to make moves, right? Because sometimes you need to make the investment before the return happens. You need to be you need to be nimble enough and have cap like have liquidity in your business to be able to make smart strategic investments. And at the end of 2019, I was just super happy that we had this is this was not by happenstance. So let me make that very clear. This is not some accident that we had this much money in the bank. My goal was to have fifty thousand dollars in cash in the bank by the end of the year. And we surpassed that. So we had over sixty seven thousand dollars in the bank at the end of the year. And that's just, again, a metric for you to start keeping track of if you're not keeping track of it right now. Um, so I was really proud of that. Um, what are some other metrics? I'm looking at my notes right now, guys. Is it? Let me know. Is this helpful so far? Just even the little bit we've been sharing <laughs> or I've been sharing. If this has been helpful, throw some hearts up on the screen because I hope this is valuable for you. Um, yeah. So those are some key metrics that really, really mattered. Um, kind of going into the like outside of top of business type of income, um, but looking at more of the actual business model. Um, okay, I'm glad. I'm really glad this has been helpful is um, we had we introduced a podcast last year and this was um, something new. So if you don't currently right now listen to my podcast, like go subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. My podcast is called Jerisha Said. Um, the podcast has been such a valuable content piece that we've added into our business model. Um, we had 57,000 downloads from our podcast last year, which is like so cool. Um, and that was strictly from iTunes. Um, so there's probably a little bit more that came from like Spotify and the other channels. But one of the things that we did this year is you guys know I'm a really big believer in creating consistent live content. And uh, I need to go back and add up how many live stream videos we did. We did, I know I did more than 80 live stream videos last year, but we repurposed a lot of the content. So all of my live streams, not all of them, but like the best performing live streams get turned into podcast episodes. So half of the podcast episodes that we produce, I'm not creating more than once. You know, I make a live stream, then we strip the audio and turn it into a podcast. So it was a really low cost um, time and financial investment to be able to repurpose that content, but it produced, uh, that podcast really contributed to our revenue having an increase this year. So we had 57,000 podcast downloads. And one thing I'm really proud of as well is we've had a paid sponsor for the podcast since the beginning. So that paid um, podcast sponsor brought in about $6,000 in revenue for the past year. And that's nothing really to like gloat about, but the thing that I am really proud about that is if you have a niche audience that you're speaking to on your podcast, you know, and we have a very niche audience that we speak to and we targeted um, a company to be a sponsor who cared about niche audiences. They want to get their software in front of a niche audience. Um, they were willing to pay us premium dollar for uh, podcast sponsorship, which isn't normal in our industry. Right. A lot of people I was doing, um, I was asking some of my industry friends, um, people who have podcasts were like on the top 100 business podcasts on iTunes. I was asking a couple of my friends about like, OK, am I undercharging or oh, am I undercharging for this podcast sponsorship? And they're like, bruh, you should expect about um, 
I think it's like $50 per 10,000 downloads per episode or something like something along those lines. It was like, you know, maybe like $10 or $20 per thousand downloads per episode. And that would mean I would get maybe $50 per episode that's sponsored. We don't have a thousand downloads per episode. Like we average about, I think we average somewhere between 800 and 1200 downloads per episode, which isn't a large quantity of downloads, but we get paid anywhere between 200 and $300 per paid sponsored episode. So I just share that to say, um, you know, and that paid sponsorship basically covers the cost of production and we make a little bit of profit on after that because cost of production for the podcast is really low. Um, but I share that because I think so often people are so hesitant to go out and make the ask because it's like, oh, I don't have enough followers or we don't have enough downloads or like whatever. And we've had a paid sponsor since the very beginning of my podcast. And you guys know I'm a very big believer in like, I do not build something until I've been paid for it, podcast included. Um, and that's just kind of like, I don't want to say a running joke, but it's kind of like an underlying principle that I, I kind of operate by. So I'm just, um, that's something I'm just kind of proud of and want to share that with you guys too. Um, now in regards to business model, there are some very strategic things that we did this year that resulted in our revenue being increased. So 80%, all of my income, this like 90, let me actually pull up the, the exact number. Um, Cause it's pretty, uh, I don't want to say alarming, but it's pretty interesting. I think is that 92% of my revenue came from our core offers. 92% of the 334,000 came from leveraged programs. Um, meaning that, you know, we did not sell any, let me actually make sure this is accurate too. We did not sell any one-on-one -on -one coaching this year. Um, we did offer like, I think two or three one-on-one -on -one calls for existing clients who were in my program who just wanted additional feedback or support. But 92% of my revenue came from a leveraged program. And 80% of that revenue came from my signature program called Services That Sell. So over 200 and I don't know, 50, I, I don't, let me see what the number is. Uh, and I hope this is helpful for you guys, but really 80% um, of my revenue came from one program offer. And I think the value in that is so often I think people feel as if, oh, I need to do more if I want to earn more, meaning that you need to sell more products, try to cater to more audiences, try to solve more problems. And the thing is, is, you know, really one of the core like kind of lessons learned and one of the core business fundamentals that I live by is, is a scripture. And I'm going to um, read that to you guys right now. Uh, Cause I think it directly correlates to like why the business experience, what it it experienced. But if you look up Matthew seven, 13 to 14, um, that scripture is titled the narrow way. And this is, uh, this is really the, the foundational principle of what my business is built on is the narrow way that if you enter by the narrow gate, your, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. And I, when you really study that scripture and if you read that scripture over and over and over again, the narrow way it is for like, listen to this, wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And when you think about that from a business model perspective, how many of you are trying to like appeal to everybody, have a broad audience, try to build these broad offers that like really aren't clear. They're not specific. They're, you're trying to create a ton of them, right? Because you're trying to like cater and serve everybody that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it, meaning that there are many people who default to going down this wide, broad path, which leads to destruction. But when you choose to go down the narrow way, one, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. God never said it was going to be easy. He never said, he never said, he never said it was going to be easy. It is difficult and uh, for people to like niche down, to get specific, to stay consistent with being specific, right? Like there's so much struggle and like turmoil about, oh, I've niched down, uh, I'm scared. Or like when you start going down that path, what normally happens, right? Like the devil gets busy. And this is something too that I learned is that normally when you, 
start operating from a space of obedience with your faith and start aligning your actions with being obedient to what God has called you to do, to going down the narrow way. That's normally when the devil gets real, real busy. Meaning that like this happens, this happens to me every time. Um, and this happens to my clients too, is like when they try, when they make a conscious decision to be obedient, to obey what God has called them to do. And this normally happens when they choose to niche down or they choose to like slim down their offers and get more focused is like a tire blows. Their husband gets laid off. Their hours get cut at work. Their job, um, you know, says their, their position is no longer needed. Like normally like some type of, and when I, when I say those things is I think those are, at least for me, those have always been like what I've started to realize is the pattern in that is that that's the devil trying to create a distraction to make me, and, and normally if you start making these decisions based out of fear, like, oh, if I niche down, I'm not going to have enough money. Or like, oh, I don't like, you know, when you start going, going down the narrow path and then all these distractions, like these circumstantial life distractions happen, what happens? Like it'll pull us away from doing the thing that we've been called to do. And then we start going back to being broad, being wide and not like, then we start experiencing true destruction. And normally that's just something that I pay attention to now is that like when some, when a life circumstance that was like out of the blue, but happens after I've been obedient, I make sure to start operating from a space of discernment to say, okay, was this, a, is this a distraction right now? Is this like the devil being busy right now? Or like, like, what does this really mean? And not allowing that circumstance to then uh, have me reverse the obedient action that I just took. Like, does that make sense? But that's been a huge lesson I've been learning. I've learned last year. Um, and kind of the lap to end the scripture, like in this principle is like difficult is the way which leads to life, like which leads to fruit being, uh, you know, harvested, which leads to abundance. Right. And there are few who find it. And I always say that, like the good life or the dream life is not for the lucky individuals in this world, but it's for the few who are willing to actually obey and be and believe that it's possible for them. Right. Because there's few who believe and there's few who obey when it comes to that principle. So uh, I say all that to say this has been, you know, a foundational. This is the scripture that my business is built on the narrow way. Like every principle I teach, every strategy I teach, my entire business model is founded on this scripture and this principle. And the reason why I'm sharing that with you is like when I look at my revenue, and my revenue is very reflective of that. So 80% of my revenue came from one core offer, services that sell. And services that sell used to be a one-on-one -on -one program. And then we proved our process through a one-on-one -on -one framework, working with clients one-on-one, -on -one, learning how to sell at high ticket, learning how to deliver consistent results. And then we repackaged that same framework into a leveraged offer. And like I said, 80% of the revenue came from that, um, which I think is like freaking amazing. So more like... Uh, I think it was like 200 and maybe $70,000 of our revenue last year came from one offer, came from niching down, came from just doubling down. And like, that was the only offer we sold for 11 months out of last year. That's the only thing we offer. That's the only thing we sold. And in the beginning, it's kind of scary when you're making that adjustment in your business model, because you might notice your income dip the first month or two when you decide to double down on one offer which is normal because you might be cutting out revenue streams or retainer clients or something like that. They might've been overly customized or like more broad or more vague. And it just takes some time for your business to stabilize. Okay. But um, we've had consistent $20,000, $30,000. Um, we even had our biggest month to date in December. We had a $40,000 month because of one offer because of one offer, one really strategically designed strategic service um, and one strategically designed leverage program. And then, you know, after 11 months of only selling that one thing, so services that sell, that's been the only offer we've sold over the last like 18 months. Um, we introduced a new program called Leverage. And Leverage has been really awesome. Leverage income that we earned, uh, when we launched Leverage, y'all, I'm like still shocked by this. Um, but we had our first six-figure launch in December, which is like been on my vision board for the past three years, is we had our first six-figure launch. 
um, when we enroll, when we open enrollment for leverage in uh, the 12-month program that we have now, um, we made over six figures in that program. And uh, a large chunk of that money is going to be collected in 2020 in this year. But um, that launch is a six-figure launch in the sense of how much money it will generate just in its first cohort, which I'm just very, very proud of. Um, and it was probably the easiest launch I've ever done. I think mainly because it goes back to like having this foundational principle of going down the narrow way. And the really the concept of leverage is one thing that's a, a lesson I learned this year too, and that I'll share with you is that every good product like solves one problem, but then it creates a new problem. So when you think about your coaching programs or the offers that you work with your clients, something that you'll notice as you're working with clients, and this is not, you don't need to know the answer to this before you start selling. Um, but every good program solves one problem and creates another. And one thing that we notice after working with over 350 clients and services that sell, only selling that program for almost two years, is that the best clients inside of services that sell, they got really good at selling high ticket offers and they got really good at book like booking one-on-one -on -one clients. They were booked enough one-on-one -on -one clients where they had reached capacity. And they were like, okay, how do I, like my business is at a really healthy five-figure or six-figure mark now. What do we do to be able to have more capacity in our schedule and increase our business revenue? And it was like, oh, like do what I did. You know, we turned our one-on-one -on -one service that worked really well, that we were able to get consistent results. We turned that into a leverage group program. So now leverage is teaching our one-on clients who sell, um, one-on-one -on -one services and have proven their one-on-one -on -one service, teaching them how to repackage their one-on-one -on -one framework into a group program and really helping them be able to surpass that $200,000 mark with this one leveraged offer. So that's, I feel like that was like a mouthful, um, but that's really what we designed to do. And we did not introduce a leverage program until I had removed myself from the delivery of our initial core program. And I think that was another huge lesson learned. Um, is like having discipline on like doubling down on one thing before introducing a new offer. And I think a lot of times people really struggle with that discipline. And that was something I know I struggled with at the beginning of 2019 of, you know, I cannot introduce a new offer until I have removed myself from the existing offer that that is most profitable for us. And, and until you remove yourself, it does not make sense for you to introduce a new offer because a lot of the time you don't have capacity to, like, it's not sustainable, right? You know, I said another big lesson learned from 2019 is stop focusing on chasing what makes money and get really focused on what is most profitable. Everybody talks about, okay, you got to get your revenue up, you got to make money, but like, what will you be able to make money doing two years from now, three years from now? And is the offer that you're selling right now just a quick fi fix to like satisfy this immediate craving of like putting some money in your pocket? Or is this offer that you're selling something that you'll be able to leverage long term? Will it create sustainable income and revenue for you? Is it consistently profitable for you to be selling this thing? And if the answer is no to those questions to what it is you're trying to sell, focus on a different business model, boo -boo, right? So that was a huge lesson learned for me is have like really playing the long game and being disciplined with how I'm making decisions in my business with my business model and how we're choosing to grow and actually controlling the growth of my company, not allowing rapid growth to take place that's not manageable, maintainable or sustainable long term. I hope that makes sense. Um, that was a huge lesson learned. And then um, another big thing that we introduced this year that we have not done before is sell by chat. So we've been really focused on closing clients via DM. And y'all, listen, 20% of the revenue we made in 2019 was strictly because of sell by chat, closing clients in the DM. And we were able to convert clients anywhere from $2,000 to $6,000 per client via direct message. And what I mean by DM, I mean by like Facebook Messenger, Instagram DM, like close, like legitimately closing clients, handling the entire sales process in the direct message. And uh, one thing about that is, you know, over about $67,000 of our revenue came from direct message sales. And I'm like, just imagine if we weren't doing that. <laughs> like that's a big, like 20% of your revenue coming from not doing sales calls 
not having to actually like book somebody on your calendar. Um, that was just huge for us this year. And that just contributed to, I, I'd say, a, a healthy portion of our overall revenue is uh, sell by chat. So those are some like key like metrics, lessons learned uh, that happened this year. And I'm really like stoked about that. Um, so yeah, so let me talk about some mistakes and how much some mistakes cost me this year and really like a lesson learned about how I've shifted my perspective on how I look at mistakes. So like earlier years in my business, if I would have made an investment that didn't pan out the way that I had thought it would, I would have felt like a complete failure. And um, I don't have the exact number on this, but at least ballpark is like, I know for sure that um, some of the hires that I made this year, investments that I made this year cost me around thirty dollars to $40,000, and they did not pan out the way that I thought they would. So they were like thirty dollars or $40,000 lessons. And the biggest lessons that I made, I don't want to call them mistakes. Again, this is me reframing because um, one thing that I think is most vital for you and for myself too, again, this is another lesson learned, is that like stop trying to avoid failure in business. Stop trying to avoid it. Like just come to terms and accept the fact that failure is going to happen. And what I mean by failure is just that like things will play out different than how you expect them to. Um, a lot of the time that we, like it's interesting, like how do you define what a failure is? And many times people will define failure as like, well, it didn't do, what what I wanted to happen didn't happen the way that I wanted it to happen or didn't happen in the time frame that I wanted it to happen, right? And we'll say, oh, it didn't work or it was a failure. And it's like sometimes one is like you have unrealistic expectations around how long something will take to start to work and you'll cl you'll prematurely classify it as a failure um, when it never should have been labeled to that labeled as that uh, at all. And secondly, is sometimes it's like, oh, I made the wrong decision. Then you start doubting your ability to make decisions just because you it didn't go the way that you expected. And just because something doesn't go the way that you expect it does not mean that it's a failure. Um, and I'm, I'm saying somebody said, this is really hard to hear. Yeah, like uh, I'm coming for y'all throats this year. Like y'all always talk about me, uh, Jay, you snatching edges. Jay, you be delivering the truth. We coming for your throats this year, okay? And I'm not even laughing about that. Like it's this is just the reality of what, what it is. Um, so one thing, and I think that's a good thing that it might be hard to hear because this might be, I don't know, some an opportunity for you to shift your perspective on things. And this was an opportunity for me. Like everything I'm sharing with you guys is like stuff that I already struggled through, had emotional breakdowns about, and like we're now on the other side. So these are things I struggle with as well. But the main thing is that like fail, stop trying to avoid failure in business um, because so much of business is like you can't keep waiting for this epiphany or for this like great idea to come, right? Like there's no epiphany that happens in business. There's no great ideas. Like there's just an idea that you have and a solution that you think will help you produce that idea in reality. And then there's just actions that you take. And as you're taking actions, you're... Um, forward motion will then start to influence how that idea evolves. And one thing is like, is every, like, just because things are like, you need to always look for the lesson that like, you need to always be a student is like, I guess the best way to say it, like always looking for what is the lesson? What is the teachable moment here? Like, like stop and not looking at it as like, don't fall into this victim or like defeating roller mentality. Right. So, like I said, I spent thirty to forty thousand dollars to learn this lesson that I'm about to share with you. Which, like, I'm like, bruh, are you serious? But this is the reality of it. Um, is it, this thirty to forty thousand dollar investment happened between two different people that I hired? And I, when I say hire, these are individuals that were uh, supporting the team and like helping with a, a very specific business objective. And the biggest thing that happened with both of these hires not working out the way that I thought that they would, or these investments not panning out the way that I thought that they would, is because I hired people who I, um, the lesson here is you need to hire people who with aligned values as yours. And what I mean by that is this is something that I didn't even know to really think of when I was doing, when I was hiring. This will play when you're hiring a coach, hiring a contractor. Um, enrolling in a program is that you need to get very, very clear on what your values are. And when you hire individuals whose values do not align with yours, I think sometimes we don't use that as a criteria 
to help us distinguish during buying decision time is sometimes we'll, you know, we see somebody getting a result that we want and we will be like, oh, they're qualified to help me. And it's like, mm, that person might be qualified to get that result for themselves, but that does not mean that this is the person that you need to be learning the process from. I said that kind of fast, but I hope you guys like pick it up what I just put down. Just because somebody can get the result or somebody has the life that you want or somebody is able to like achieve the outcome that you're looking to get, um, it does not mean that they're the person that you should necessarily hire from. That is an indicator. You need to be making sure that you're vetting who you're hiring, that you are uh, making sure that you're hiring somebody who, can, who actually has a proven process to get the result that you want. But then kind of the third thing that you may be looking for there are do their values align with mine? And one of the hires that I made, and this is something I didn't even pay attention to, which is like, I will never make this mistake again, is I hired somebody um, who was not a believer. And it, that's never been a criteria that I looked for before in making a hiring decision. But I think that that, that very much played into our relationship um, having a lot of friction is because core values, fundamental beliefs on how... Um, how do I say this? <laughs> um, I was talking, this is something I was, again, having a conversation with my fiance about. And it's like, sometimes, you know, the way that you, pro like when you're a believer and when you're like, believe that Christ died for your sins and that you try to operate um, as we've been instructed to from the kingdom here on earth, that looks different than when you're trying to interact with somebody who doesn't have that same value system, right? So if you're working with somebody who doesn't have like a good moral compass, the way that they make decisions is going to be a little bit different than how you would make decisions being a believer, right? Because we have a different compass. There's a different like moral compass that drives how we behave, how we respond, how we interact with people, um, how we're willing to ask for forgiveness and own up to our like our missteps. And when you hire somebody who does not have the same moral compass as you, uh, and then when 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 troubling times present themselves, the way that they will respond and react is way off than how you would expect. And um, that's like a huge lesson learned for me is like that. That's one way when I mean values is hiring people whose like moral compass is aligned with yours. And also, too, when I say hiring based off of values is when you're trying to hire somebody to help you grow your business or increase your revenue or to evolve your business model. Um, don't just only like if you, but if let's say you're hiring somebody to help you make your first six figures or to help you make your first 300 K or whatever. And you have to look at how, what did their lifestyle look like while they were building this business or what did their lifestyle look like while they were implementing this strategy? And sometimes you can hire somebody that like, I'll show you how to make a million dollars. Okay, I've seen them make a million. I've seen them teach other people how to make a million. I wanna make a million. They can get me to the result. But then you don't pay attention to the, what did the process look like, right? What, what, what did they have to sacrifice to get to where they got? What did they have to compromise to get to where they got? What was really like fully required for them to get to where they got? And if that does not align, with what you're willing to sacrifice, with what you're willing to compromise, with how you're willing to move, don't hire that person. Don't do it because their process, like right, their proven process to help you get that result, their process might work. But if that process does not align with your values or what you're willing to sacrifice, compromise or whatever on, um, you will have a very difficult time executing on what they're telling you to do. You will have a lot of friction with actually being able to listen to them and receive them and be coached by them because fundamentally at a subconscious level, if those things do not align, how, like how, like how are you going to, to do what they're telling you to do? Or even as you start doing what they tell you to do, if it does not align with your values, then you start creating a business that like creates a lifestyle that you hate, right? So like, when I, that's what I mean when I say hiring values, like hiring, that was like a thirty dollars to $40,000 lesson. And I learned it twice because first time I learned the lesson, it was like, okay, I have to make sure that I, some of these lessons didn't present themselves until eight or nine months after I made the investment. And what I mean by that is like, sometimes you don't learn the lesson right away because the problem doesn't even fully present itself. So with uh, one of these individuals, the problem did not present itself until November no, not November, until like maybe October. 
and I had made the investment in January. It's like things were kind of like really cute and dandy up until October. And then October hit and it was like, oh, oh, this is who I'm really dealing with. Um, and it was that was somebody who I hired whose moral compass did not align with mine. And then the other investment I made, I, I found out pretty fast, like six months, 60 days in. But I wasn't I didn't know how to articulate it. And it took me a couple months of just processing and like reevaluating and analyzing, OK, why did this not work out? And, you know, why did I keep classifying this as a failure before I was able to really understand it was because like core values did not align. And there's no way I would have been able to get the result from this person because those core values were like butted heads. So that was a huge, um, some very huge revelations for me this past year. And kind of now, these are now criteria that I look for when making an investment, especially like high ticket investments, you know, $5,000, $10,000, $30,000 investments. Like these are things that now go into my buying criteria is like, is this person a believer? Um, does this person have like a good moral compass? And I'm not saying that I'm looking for somebody who's perfect. Um, I'm saying that I'm looking for somebody who's willing to own up when they make mistakes and how do they handle those mistakes when they do happen? Because nobody's perfect. And in business, like dumb stuff happens. Um, and that's just part of business. I, I don't fault people for that type of stuff, but I pay attention to how do they react in those situations? Do they take ownership? Are they willing to make things right? How do they go about doing that? Um, and again, like if, and again, a values-based thing is the process that they're teaching, does this align with the lifestyle that I want to have? And what did they sacrifice? What do they compromise on? And are those things I'm willing to sacrifice and compromise on to get the result in the way that they're teaching me how to get the result? So that was a big thing there. Um, and I'd say the other thing that I... Um, Somebody asked, how do you know before hiring? You know, I, if I'm, again, this is not something, I do not use this criteria if the investment is like a couple hundred dollars or even like a couple thousand. I really think about these, I, I, I think about them, but they don't overly influence the decision. Like these are things I definitely consider and again, higher ticket offers. Um, and one of the things, ways I do that is like most people who are selling a $10,000 or $30,000 or like, $6,000 program, they normally create content. They share their beliefs. They share their thoughts. So I'm a big believer in, you know, I listen to their podcast episodes. I listen to their live stream videos um, over like a, you know, a, a good period of time, maybe a month, maybe three months. Um, and, you know, I, I do my diligence, like listen to what they're saying, and, you know, and then you can kind of look at like just following these individuals on Instagram or Facebook, people share their life. And it's like, you look at what do they choose to share and what are those real moments that happen? You know, I always look for individuals who are willing to be transparent about their journey. Like transparent, transparency is one of my core values. And if somebody else is not willing to be transparent about the process that they, like really what was required for them to get the results that they want, that might, I won't say it's a red flag, but it's like, okay, maybe I need to do some more digging or during that sales conversation, these are questions you can just blatantly ask. Like what's required for me? If they do not make it clear during the sales process, what is required for you to get the results? Ask, okay, like I know this is the result that you're saying, but what are the qualifiers? Like what are the things that need to be true for me today for me to be set up to be successful to be able to implement this? Um, who are who is this program not designed for? Right? Like who are you at? Like who like get these are questions as a buyer you should be asking. Or honestly, as a business owner, like these are questions I make sure to answer before somebody even ever has the opportunity to ask me the question, right? So these are things that you can legit just ask. And a lot of this stuff that you can just kind of see through the content people post, through their live streams, their podcasts, their, their news feed, whatever. Um, I'd say the other big thing that I invested in this year that was a game changer for me is I invested in being in rooms that made me uncomfortable. And... Um, and these were like multi five figure investments. So one thing about me is this is something I know and I don't hesitate on today. These are things that I very much hesitated on a year and a half ago is I made investments that made me very uncomfortable because when you get to a certain point in business, uh, a lot of us here, you included, you're probably smart enough to figure out a lot of things right on your own. 
And sometimes when you, if you keep noticing that when you make investments in programs that maybe are $50, that are financially comfortable for you, and you notice that you don't show up and you don't do the work in those programs, it's time for you to make bigger investments. Because if you keep making investments in programs, coaching, consulting, or what have you, where the investment is financially comfortable for you, it's less likely for you to show up and do the work and actually be a true student. At least I know that's something for me. Like if I invest in something today that's $200, I'm probably not going. Um, I might send a team member to go. I might use that as training for a team member, but it has to be like, like damn good for me to want to come to something that I paid 200 bucks for. Versus if I spend $20,000 on something, that makes me a little bit more like, mm, that was a lot of money. Like, if, 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 And that investment has it makes me a little bit more fine, like, financially uncomfortable, I show up to every coaching call. I am uh, responding to every post in the Facebook group. I am asking questions. I will be the star student sitting front row taking notes. I got individual notebooks for the program because like now you're, you're more fully invested and you have to pay attention to what that means for you. Um, Cause I know now like, there's just, if I'm looking to get a specific result, I, part of how I make the investment is being doing things that like literally force me into a stage of discomfort because I know when I'm in a stage of discomfort, I've now put myself in a position where I can't risk losing. Like I can't risk not making this work. Right. So if I put myself in a position where I can't risk like me, it not working out is not an option. Like when I put myself in those positions, I end up getting really, really amazing results because I show up way differently than I would for something that didn't or doesn't really cause a financial discomfort for me. So that's like one indicator now that I really pay attention to is like when I mean by putting myself in rooms that make me uncomfortable, I mean like putting myself in programs or um, whatever that causes like legitimate financial discomfort. And I'm not saying like go in debt over this, but I'm just saying like, okay, like if you keep noticing you're getting stagnant or just not showing up the way that you know you normally would, um, the investment probably needs to be higher. And then second, when I say like being in rooms that make me uncomfortable is I've been very intentional on joining programs um, that are led by white men or that are more male dominated. And the reason why I say that is because this is just fact, guys, being a black female, being a double, you know, I don't want to call us a minority, but just having a double level of underrepresentation, there are just certain privileges that my brain does not know how to default to. There are certain privileges that white men just have naturally because they are a white man in America. I want access to how they think from a privileged perspective. Like I love being in and you know, being an engineer. Uh, there's only like 1% of black female engineers graduating in the country per year. Um, so I'm used to being around like predominantly white male environments because that was my corporate background. Um, but part of the reason why I choose from a business perspective to hire people and to be in, like, I, I don't hire any one-on-one -on -one coaches anymore. Um, everybody I hire now, they facilitate group programs or a group mastermind, um, mainly because I like to, like, one, that's another thing is being in rooms that make me uncomfortable. I like being in rooms where I can learn from a diverse range of individuals, like not just diverse from ethnicity or race, but like diversity from business model, from revenue, um, just diversity of perspective on things. But I love being in rooms that are culturally diverse with people who are from different countries, um, from di like in that, that, that are different genders, different ages, because it gives you access to privilege that you may not have by default just because, because of your age, because of your race, and because of your gender in this country. And that's just the reality of it. And I know I've talked to some clients who are like, well, I'm tired of being the only one in the room. And sometimes being the only one in the room is such a big advantage because um, I'm in a program now. There's probably uh, like 400 uh, clients in this coaching program. Um, you have to make there's qualifiers to get in. You have to make at least two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to even get admission into this program. Um, there's probably eight percent of like black people in the entire program. But the thing I love about it is like 50 percent of the program is American. Fifty percent of the program is like Australian or Europeans. So like there's this interesting perspective that you get when you're around people from different parts of the world and just how they think about things. 
Like, you know, Australians look at vacation and free time way differently than Americans. And like just being access to me, that's a privilege. Like being being privy to that thought process makes me a better business owner. Um, you know, having access to being around more men, quite honestly, like there's just a there's just I, I don't want to call it an arrogance, but there is just a a pace at which white men move through the world that it's just like as women and as women of color, like I just think we second guess or doubt or like question or like, well, I have to be overly qualified before I ever ask for that. And they're like asking for things when they're nowhere even near qualified type of thing. And it's just like, there's nothing right or wrong about it. It just is the way that it is. But I invest in programs intentionally with people who do not look like me, um, you know, just to make sure that I'm not limiting myself to only think the way that people who look like me think. Does that make sense? And this is why, like, I'm so adamant on doing my best to, to create, you know, again, this is why I love group programs. This is why I facilitate group programs. This is why I invest in group programs. Like, I don't like working with client, like coaches one-on-one. Um, like the only people I plan to work on one-on-one with in 2020 is a therapist. And that's about it. Like, that's the only person I plan to work with one-on-one this year as a therapist. Um, outside of that, like, I want to be in group programs because there's just, when you're growing at this at this rate and, and you want to get to a different level, that variety and perspective is invaluable. Um, and when I look at people who are in, like, my leverage program now, it's like we have men, we have white women, we have people from Mexico and France, and we have people who are all over the country. And, like, that value in cultural diversity um, again, from an age, a race, a nationality, it's just, it's invaluable. So that's something I look for when I'm enrolling in programs now. And like, I legit ask when I'm enrolling in a program, like, what is your demographic makeup? If it's not diverse, I'm not enrolling. Um, what is your age? Like, I don't really care about age, like age as much, but I'm just like, what is your demographic makeup? What is the ethnic um, ratio? And what is the gender ratio in your program? And that is legitimate, something that I ask during a sales conversation with these co- with these on these sales calls and if they can't answer the question one that goes against one of my core values of like div- like inclusivity if you're not even paying attention to those metrics will the values align with how you're going to teach me and two will this environment be an environment where I can thrive right so those are just things that I look for that uh, communities that I try to cultivate and again just whatever you know for you that might not be the thing that makes you uncomfortable but just my thing is like, how can you put yourself in rooms and in environments that do call, like, that do force you into discomfort? Um, and another thing is like, I like being in rooms where I'm the small fish, meaning like one of the programs that I'm in right now, even though I, I'm very proud of the revenue that we made, 334000 in a year, um, I was sitting at a table with somebody and they made that like in the last month. And it's just like, okay. <laughs> and for a minute, you might feel like shame or like, bruh, all the work that I did in a year, you just made that same amount of money in four weeks. Um, but when you really focus on like looking at that as like, this is what's available. And like, when you start getting around people who $334,000 is chump change to them, it starts to force you to think differently about what's possible. It forces you to believe bigger. It forces you to like, just expand your realm of reality. Um, so I love being in rooms that make me uncomfortable, like uncomfortable on those three different levels. Uh, and I think that's really like main reflections from the past year, from metrics, lessons learned. Um, you know, somebody said, I barely make 2K per month. Like, you know, and, and, and but my thing is that person was making 334K a month they started where you are. Like they started at, like all of us start at zero. Start with zero clients, start with zero email subscribers, start with zero live streams published. Everybody starts at zero. And I think that's the thing to me that's most inspiring is because like um, Elena, I see you in the comments saying, you know, I barely make 2K per month. I remember when that was my situation, like like three years ago, where it was like making $2,000 a month was like, bro, we made it. Like that was like almost seemed unimaginable. And it's like now three years later, um, making 20 K in a month is easy. Like that's to be expected. Um, something's wrong if we're not making 20 K in a month. 
And, you know, I imagine this individual, you know, he's been in business, I think, for like 12 years, 15 years. So, like, again, look at the process. Don't, you know, don't overly compare your ground zero or your step one to somebody else's step 15. Um, You know, to him, it's probably making $200,000 in a month is like to be expected. But my thing is, all of us have those stages of belief and all of us, like that's available to all of us too, if we continue to like follow the narrow path, if we continue to like be obedient, if we continue to invest based off of values. Um, And if we just continue to stay in business, like most people don't stay in business 15 years, they quit after 15 months. Um, And like a lot, again, then they'll classify it as a failure and like it never should have been a failure. You just quit prematurely. So um, those are biggest reflections. And let me do some Q&A because I know this was this was good. I hope this was good for you guys. It was really good to like talk it out and talk it back to you. Um, so yeah, let me see what questions you guys had asked that I have not already answered. Uh, let me pull this up here on Instagram. Somebody said, what's the scripture again? I, it was Matthew 13 and 14. And the scripture is titled The Narrow Way. Matthew 13, am I saying this right? No, it's Matthew 7, 13, 14. Matthew 7, 13, 14 is the scripture. Um, Let me see if there's any questions. Uh, I can't see this question. So if you're still on the live stream, can you please actually type out the rest of your question? I think they said I'm a graphic designer in my first year revenue reached 40 K, but I ran myself into a crazy place Um, is the, I don't know what the rest of the question was, but if you're still here, please answer that question. Um, Kind of on that same vantage point. If you have any questions, guys, like please post them now so we can do a quick Q and a, but one of the questions that one of my new leverage clients asked me today, uh, she got to her point. She, she crossed over the six figure mark last year. Um, but she was completely burnt out by the end of the year. And she was like, you know, one of my goals, one of her goals is like to stop working uh, 60 hour weeks so consistently. And she's like, do you work 60 hour weeks? And I like kind of laughed because I'm like, I cannot remember the last time I worked a 60 hour week in my business. And, you know, at most uh, I will work 40 hours a week. And like the most demanding season of last year was, um, when we were opening enrollment for leverage, because I was the one doing all the sales calls. And I would I had like six to eight sales calls a week. So like pretty much my nine to five was like back to back filled with sales calls. And then I had to work in the evening because I had just enrolled, I mean onboarded a new employee. Um that was a, that, that was like the first time all year I had worked 40 hours in a week. And my body almost didn't know how to respond to it like what are you doing right now? Because I hadn't worked that many hours in a week back to back in a very, very long time. Um, So if you notice that there is a lot of uh, constraint that's happening from a capacity standpoint, like if you're running yourself crazy to be able to make your your revenue goals, that there's probably an opportunity for you to either shift your business model or shift how you're doing things in your business. And honestly, like if you're, one thing I always say, like you can easily hustle your way to 100K. You can probably even hustle your way to like 150, 200. But like my thing is the way that you've been building your business, can you repeat it? Is it sustainable? Can you maintain the pace at which you've been moving? And if the answer is no, you really need to evaluate your business and like start looking at things differently, like looking at either the business model needs to change, how you serve and deliver your client to your clients needs to change, um, how you operate with it. Something has to shift. And if it doesn't, like, again, this is what I mean by, like, stop focusing so much on what are the things that you can create or produce that make you money and start focusing more long term strategically. What is the most profitable for me? Profitable from a revenue standpoint, profitable from a time availability standpoint, profitable from like a flexibility standpoint. And those answers are normally very, very different. Um, Sharona, I think is your name. She said, how do you establish your metrics goals when you first get started? If you're first getting started, the only metric you need to be worrying about is revenue. I do not worry about the number of followers you have. Do not worry about the number of email subscribers you have. Do not worry about anything else. The only thing, if you're just getting started, the only number that you need to pay attention to is um, probably two numbers. How much contact are you making with prospective clients? So like 
sales is a contact sport. The more contact you make, the more sales you will generate. And how much revenue are you making? Because if you keep, like, it, that, that's it. That is the only metrics you should care about. Uh, and what I say that is like pick one, you know, using the pop method, pick one medium that you're going to use to communicate with your audience consistently, whether that's doing live stream video on Facebook, doing um, Instagram stories daily, like pick one thing that pick one platform that you're going to focus on showing up on on a daily basis to make contact with prospective clients and to make contact to start those sales conversations and uh, focus on what is the one thing that I'm going to do to make me money. Because in the beginning, that's all that matters. Revenue, 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 revenue. That is the only thing that matters. Um, if you get caught up or get distracted by focusing on other metrics in the beginning, those things do not matter. Because like you can literally, you know, we teach our clients in services that sell how to sell high ticket clients without a website, without Facebook ads, without an email sequence without um, webinars, like those metrics do not matter in the beginning. Only thing you need to worry about is how do I close a client? How do I get that client a result? And that's your offer. Like, and that's it. Like, if you, that's all you need to focus on. In the beginning, only thing you need to focus on is sales. Get you to a point where you've done maybe $15,000 in revenue. And then there's other metrics you can start caring about. But in the beginning, that's it. Don't overcomplicate it. Keep it simple. Keep, maintain your focus, stay disciplined on that. If it, it you know, because I think the biggest thing when you're just getting started that I see that makes people quit prematurely is they focus on ideas that are really just projects or hobbies, and they've never really turned their idea into an actual business model. They've never really articulated that this idea, this problem that I can solve, what is the way that I'm going to make money off of it? And not just an idea of like, oh, I can just be a coach. No, like what is the promise that you are going to deliver? What is the process you're going to implement that is simple, that again, focuses on like, you know, we teach the lean launch, live stream video, sales calls, that's it. Don't, don't bog yourself down with all these other things and shiny objects. Like again, focus on the narrow way. And that means when I say narrow, I mean narrow in every aspect of your business. Um, how can I go from having clients on a one-on-one -on -one to a group setting where I don't have to lose my mind because I also own another business? Um, so with that question, my thing is like, I always say um, it's not, I think it's the best to go group after you've proven that you can get a consistent result with clients one-on-one. -on -one, and you've also learned how to sell that offer one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and I'm a really big believer in selling like leveraged high ticket programs. Um, so having a group program that has a multi four figure or five figure price tag attached to it. And uh, so that's the type of group programs I facilitate and that I teach. So that this perspective is going to be from that arena. Um, but the main thing is like once you can work with, you know, three to five clients one on one, sell that at a high ticket price point, learn how to sell that at a high ticket price point, and you can consistently produce the same result for client after client after client, that's a really good time for you to then start thinking about transitioning the delivery of that same curriculum, but in a group format. So those are some things to think about before going to group. Um, I think sometimes people go to group prematurely um, and that type of thing, um, mainly because like it sounds sexy, but it's like, and those are two fundamental things is, do you know how to sell it at a high ticket price point? Like, can you sell it consistently? Or do you have a good grasp on how to sell it? And then secondly is, um, can't does the process that you take a client through produce consistent results? Because that's all a group program is at the end of the day. And guys, uh, Instagram is about to kick me off in one minute. So I'm gonna screenshot your questions really quick and pop up another, uh, I'm gonna answer these questions over on Facebook, okay? Because Instagram's kicking me off now. <laughs> Bye. Okay, so over here on Facebook, I'm gonna finish answering these questions that a couple of these individuals asked. because I think they're really good questions. Um, Mia, can you finish your question? What's the max number of clients? I don't, I don't understand the question there. Um, and then let me pull up these questions really quick that other people had asked. Somebody asked, how much did you spend, did you invest in Facebook ads on your first launch? I did not spend any money on Facebook ads during my first launch. I did not spend money on Facebook ads until my business was already like, we really didn't spend money on Facebook ads until we we're about six figures in, in business. 
Um, again, I'm a really big believer that like Facebook ads amplifies what currently exists. And if you do not have a really solid process around how to communicate with your clients, how to con communicate the value of what you deliver, and if you do not know how to like consistently close clients um, organically or naturally, you throwing money on Facebook ads is like almost a waste of money in my opinion um, for either lead attraction or for uh, setting Facebook ads up from a conversion standpoint. So we didn't, I, I didn't spend any money on Facebook ads during my first launch. And even the six figure launch that we just had, no Facebook ads were spent at all. Like this launch was a six figure organic launch using the lean launch method, like legit doing live stream video and doing sales calls. That was it. Uh, somebody said tips on coming up with a business name. So one thing about a business name, I think a lot of the time, um, when you're when like one thing when you're coming up with a business name, if you are the face of your business, this is just my opinion. I think your business name should be your name, um, mainly because a lot of the time when you're creating a business as a coach, a consultant, a freelancer, um, somebody in the online space, where like people people are buying you at the end of the day. Like especially these first few years in business and as you're like establishing your reputation and building out your results, like like people are not buying services that sell. Like the, the reason why services that sell is where it is is because people were buying Jerisha Hawk. And I had to train them to start to buy my process and focus on the process that I'm delivering and not just buying, buying me. But at the end of the day, like people aren't searching for leverage or searching for services that sell as much as they're searching for Jerisha Hawk. So like when it comes to a business name, um, that's just my like it's it's way easier for me to keep my business name as Jerisha Hawk. And then my program. Now, your program has a name like, you know, I have a program services that sell. We have a program leverage. And those are programs or offers within my business. But my business name and kind of what I want to be known for, what I want to so like what people naturally associate with me is me. Um, and if and I think if you're at like, the face of your company. And like, honestly, if you, like, this is anybody, I think a lot of times people say, well, I want to build a business where I'm not the face of it. If you're a coach, consultant, freelancer, like get over that. Um, Cause at the end of the day, people are going to be buying you until you get to a point where like you built an agency or until you get to a point where you've documented your IP to now where your business model turns into an asset. Like, but until that happens, which is going to be a good amount of time, like get over it. Like own the fact, like if you're building a business online, you being visible is a non-negotiable, period. Like if you are building a business online and I'm not talking about e-commerce, I'm talking about as a coach, consultant, a service provider, you being visible is a non-negotiable, non-negotiable. This is not something like a non-negotiable. So if you keep trying to hide being visible when you're trying to build a business that's really based, like people are making buying decisions really because of like who you are, and you're never actually giving them the opportunity to learn who you are. You are shooting yourself in the foot. Um, and that's just like people might say, well, I don't have a personality for that or like whatever. And this is kind of where I go back to like biblically based principles. God did not call you or like God does not like God did not ask what your personality was. If he instructed you to build this business and to be of service to the kingdom using your gifts in this way, your personality don't matter. Like, and this, that, that's a beautiful thing. Again, when you build a business based on like from a biblical standpoint, you don't have to be the one responsible to figure it out. Like he's the one that figures it out. All you have to do is just obey. And when you can get to a, a point or get to a season where you can just focus on being obedient, just be obedient. You don't have to be the most extroverted person. You don't have to be the prettiest person. You don't have to be the most comfortable on camera. Like you don't have to be perfect on the podcast. Like God didn't ask you for that. All he asked you to do was just be obedient. But if you're building an online business, you being visible is a non-negotiable. So that's just what I'm going to say to that. Um, so somebody said, what's the max number of clients you have in a group to service them and yourself the best? I don't think there's like... I don't, I don't like that. Like that question is, um, I think it's the wrong question to ans ask Mia. Like what's the question behind the question? Because when people say like, what's the max number of clients? Like I've been in group programs where there's five people. I've been in group programs where there's 400. Um, it's really about what, like, I think the number of clients that you should enroll in a group program at a time is really based on what can you serve and what can you, like, can you deliver the promise consistently to that number of people? 
right? I think a lot of times people are like, well, I want 20 people in my group program, but like you don't have any proven process documented. You cannot actually deliver that service to that many people at this season in your business. So I think the number of people that you may be enrolled should also be very much dependent on like you asking the question and being self-aware enough to know like how much of my process is documented, how much of my process is not customized. You know, if you have an overly customized group program, like stop. Um, there needs to be like stop looking at your group program as like customized coaching, but look at your group program is a proven framework to get to a specific end result. And the more that you can have that documented and streamlined, the more people you can run through it. I like to look at a group program like an assembly line. Like that's how I know that we've achieved success. Like when you look at the industrial or techn technology industry, when like you know making a car, if you start at the beginning of the assembly line, you like if you can anticipate. And this is how I look at group programs and what we teach our clients and leverage to do is how do they create a group program that is like a machine where you put a client in and out they get out the output is the result that you promised. And that happens after time and time and time again. And it's optimized to do that. Um, that's when you know you can start enrolling more and more clients in because the machine, the actual asset, your proven process is documented, is vetted out, is clear, it's consistent, it produces consistent results. So um, I think the number of clients that you enroll in a group program needs to be very much dictated by how well oiled your machine is, meaning how well oiled is the proven process you take clients through to get results. And yeah, that's like kind of the best way that I can answer that question. Um, but guys, I just want to say thank you um, for tuning in. This was a long episode, but I think there was a lot of valuable information shared. Um, and if you are somebody that either wants to raise the rates this year, that wants to sell high ticket services this year, or is interested in like creating a high ticket group program this year, I invite you to join me inside of my Facebook group. This is completely free. Um, you can visit jerishahawk.com backslash join. The pro this group is specifically for service providers who want to sell high ticket, whether that's one-on-one -on -one or in a group. Um, so come join us over there. And it would mean the world to me if you guys, if this was valuable for you, share this episode, um, tag a friend on it. And more than anything else, like I love to hear what your insights are and to hear what was valuable or insightful for you. So please tag me on Instagram um, and let me know what was most valuable or most insightful for you from today's episode. Um, so I will talk to you guys soon. Happy New Year. Welcome into 2020. Um, I cannot wait to share with you guys uh, more about how we're planning to move forward in 2020 to even allow this year to be, again, increased growth year over year as we continue to go. So thanks for tuning in. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for sharing and I'll talk to y'all soon. Bye y'all.